0: The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. I'll read our passage, then I want to spend a little time giving an introduction to to this summer, and then we're going to come back. It'll be a little bit longer of an introduction than normal, uh, but then we're going to come back to this main passage. And so, for now, let's let's turn our attention to Genesis chapter 3. And as we read this, we remember that this is... This is God's Word, that it's inspired, meaning it's God-breathed, uh, that, that to neglect any of these words is to neglect God. And uh, so we come under these, this teaching and these words with awe, um, with humility, with teachability, uh, with reverence, um, desiring to hear from God directly. And so let's read Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, and to dust you shall return the man called his wife's name eve because she was the mother of all living and the lord god made for adam and eve adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them well this series what we're calling is speaking of jesus stories of redemption in the old testament and i want you to think about this as we reflect on this passage and kick off this series is that if you were to teach someone about jesus maybe a child, uh, maybe a neighbor, maybe a co-worker, where would you go? If you're thinking, I want to teach someone about Jesus, where would you automatically go? Now, some of you might begin in the New Testament, you might even begin in the book of Matthew, the Christmas story, looking at chapter 1 in verse 18, where it starts out this way, where it says, now the birth of Jesus took place in this way. And logically, this isn't the wrong place to start when you're talking about Jesus. You're talking about Well, where do I go in the Bible that talks about Jesus? Let's let's go to where the Bible says he was born and where it all started. The story of Jesus begins much earlier in the pages of scriptures. For instance, when Jesus was crucified and he was buried and he rose from the grave, he encounters two men that are walking along a road to a town called Emmaus. And he strikes up a conversation with these men about his death and resurrection. He comes on the scene and they don't recognize him at first and and the New Testament writer, Luke, he, he describes this situation as, it's, as it unfolds. And here's a recap of that conversation. You can follow along here in Luke 24, starting in verse 17. It says this, And he said to them, What's this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. And one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days. And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. We had hoped that he would be the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb earlier this morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to a tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, here's Jesus' response as they're recapping the events of that weekend. We thought Jesus would save us, but then he died, and now people say he's alive, but we haven't seen him. And he says, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So these men are devastated. They are confused. They're discouraged. They're bummed out that the one that they thought that would bring hope to their lives and rescue to their sorrow is dead. And Jesus responds to them in this way. He says, haven't you read your Bibles? You should have seen this coming. He appears to be even frustrated when he says this. The kind of frustration that a parent might have with their child who has to repeat themselves over and over and over again. And the children just don't get it. They don't listen. And so he says, haven't you read the scriptures? Haven't you read your Bibles? Well, what Bible is he talking about? He's talking about the Old Testament scriptures, the scriptures that they would have at that time. And he says he is the point of the Old Testament. He is the point of those writings, that they should see him in the Old Testament. That they, sh- they should have anticipated his arrival, that they should have had their eyes open, and when he came, none of this should have been a confusing thing for them. Knowing this changes the way we then go back and read the story. So if you were to watch a movie, you know there's some of these movies that are so, uh, they, they almost start at the end, and they're very confusing. I don't mean to spoil uh any any i don't mean to spoil a movie for someone but if you haven't seen it then you're probably not going to see it and and i don't feel too bad but the sixth sense you know so you you start this movie and it's 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 a tough movie it's uh it's a scary movie but you find out at the end that this guy was dead all along i'm sorry bruce willis was he was dead all along you see his little boy he, he he says i see dead people that's the famous line in this movie right I see dead people, and he's meeting with his counselor, Bruce Willis, but the truth is that Bruce Willis is, is a ghost. And, and, you're, and so you get to the end of the movie, and, you're, and you say, I've got to go back and watch that. I've got to go back and watch the movie from the beginning, now knowing what I know at the end, and, and watching it with that new perspective. Well, this is what, how we should read the Old Testament. See, we know this, the fulfillment, the culmination of all that God had promised and what we've been waiting for, and we see Jesus, and the New Testament talks of Him and his, and his works and His victory over death and sin, and now we go back reading the Old Testament that prepared the way for Him and spoke of Him and wrote of Him all this time. And so today we begin this summer series teaching through the Old Testament. The Bible consists of 66 books, 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. And in those 39 books of the Old Testament, there are five major categories, five major kinds and styles of writing. The first five books are called the Pentateuch or the the Torah. These are the law given by Moses. And then we see the history books, the history of God's people and of Israel. And then there are prophetic writings. So these are the prophets. You've heard of this before, right? The, The prophets. So if you think of Old Testament, maybe you think of that. You think of, well, I know that there were prophets, and they, they, they wrote prophecies, and they, they, they spoke prophecies, and they were God's mouthpiece to his people, like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And then there are, there are minor prophets, people like Habakkuk. You're like, I've heard that name before. Yes, Habakkuk. People like Jonah. And then there are wisdom literature, wisdom literature like the Psalms and the Proverbs. and Song of Solomon and, and Job. In Ecclesiastes. And all these 39 books are, are meant to prepare us for the coming Christ. And in some way, we are meant to read the Old Testament, and we see that God is doing, He's revealing more and more about Himself, and about Christ, and about He would answer our pain, and answer our sin, and he, how He would rescue us, what He would be like, what He will do, what His character will be. And so consider again, like all those parts of the Bible that that are tough to read, that you might think, what does this have to do with anything? You know, as you start your yearly Bible reading plan, it's January and you say, I'm going to start reading the Bible and I'm going to do it through a year. And, and, and it seems like the first three months you're reading genealogies. And you're thinking, what is the point of this? What is this doing for my soul? How is this encouraging me? And so you mumble through the names, you try to pronounce them, you skim over them, you skip them completely, wondering like, I knew I just should have read the New Testament, the Old Testament. What's the point? And Luke again provides a list, a genealogy in Luke chapter 3. He provides this genealogy in Jesus. And just think about this and just reflect on this as he says, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years old, being the son, as it was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Matat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, And then for 15 verses, he continues to give names like this. The son of, the son of, the son of, the son of. And then he gets to verse 38 and says, The son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Okay, Luke is wanting us to see something about Jesus. He's wanting us to see how far back the story of Christ goes. How far back the story of Jesus goes. And he says, Luke wants us to see, that the story of Jesus begins at the dawn of history, the dawn of mankind. And I realize this is somewhat of a long introduction to get into this passage, but just one more thing, and then we'll jump into our main text. Luke says, I want you to know that Jesus begins at the dawn of time. And the Apostle John takes us back even further as he talks about Jesus, in the opening paragraph, he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was, beginning, he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him, nothing that was made was made. And then in verse 14, he says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the Son, the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So not only does Jesus begin at the dawn of history, John is telling us that Jesus begin, he predates history. That Jesus is eternal. That he is the author of history. That all that is made was made for and through and by Christ. That nothing that has happened in all of creation was, has happened apart from Jesus, the pre incarnate Son of God. And what happens from Genesis to Revelation are great Bible stories, and you've maybe heard most of them in, in Sunday school class if you were a child who grew up in the church. Maybe you're familiar with some of these stories. Our kids are learning them even today. And Edward, Edmund Clowney says this. He says, there are great stories in the Bible, but it's possible to know Bible stories and miss the story of the Bible. Jesus isn't just part of the story. He's not just a great addition to the story of the Bible. He's the point of the Bible. He is the hero of it all. He is the main purpose and plan of God's revelation. It is, everything culminates in Him. The Bible is about Jesus, and He is the central hero of it all. Part of the reason for we misunderstand the Bible as we read the Old Testament, as we dig into it and why we, we become lethargic or we become bored or we don't see the significance is because we fail to read it in this way the bible is great god's great story and it culminates in jesus so this summer we go through the old testament and it's not just about gathering information it's not just about learning these stories it's about hoping to be transformed in our hearts and our minds because we believe that there is no greater relationship than that with jesus christ There's no greater way of being transformed in our life than knowing him and knowing him well. And God wants us to know who he is. And it starts the beginning pages of scripture for us. And so where do we start to knowing about God? Well, let's start at the beginning. Let's start at Genesis. That's a great place to start, right? Let's start at the first book of the Bible. Jesus is referring to when he says... The law of Moses, he's talking about the books written by Moses. He's talking about the book of Genesis written by Moses. And we start there in the first chapter. We see that God creates in stages. First, he he starts with light, and then he finishes creating man. And we learn a lot about God's relationship with mankind, with humanity in these opening verses. For one, we see that mankind is made with with a distinction from distinct from the rest of creation. Man is part of creation, but there's something special about man. He's unique among the creatures because he's made to be like God. Chapter 127 says, God created man in his image, according to his likeness. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. And sad and as tragic as it is to see a a beautiful animal today killed, like like a majestic gorilla or a beautiful lion, 10 out of 10 times, there's a reason why that a human life is always more valuable, always more important than an animal's life, not because that human can contribute something to society that an animal can't, not because there's an external beauty or potential success for that that person, but because of their unique distinction bestowed on them among all of creation. Man, kind, humankind is the crown of God's creation. We see in the opening pages that there is a personal and intimate relationship with God that mankind shares that no other creation does. Genesis 2.7 says, then the Lord God formed man from dust, from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. God breathed into Adam's nostrils. How many people have you gotten that close to? Think about it. How many people in your life have you gotten that close to that you could breathe in their nostrils? Enough to fill their lungs with air. I hope not many. (laughs) Close enough to breathe into their nostrils. Here's the point. That's intimacy. That's closeness. That's relationship. That is fellowship. You breathe into someone's nostrils. That person better have your last name. (laughs) Right? at the very least. This isn't just information. God is wanting us to see that that his relationship with humankind is so close, so intimate, so personal. They are made with distinction, and they are made with a personal, intimate fellowship with God that no other creature shares. Nancy Guthrie, a Bible scholar, says this. She said, God chose the most lowly and humble matter possible, dust from the ground, and infused it with the most significant and glorious of all substances, the breath of God God takes what is lowly dirt what is nothing and he infuses it with the most glorious thing God's very life his very breath and thirdly we see that there is meaningful calling for humankind man is to represent the very glory of God on the earth He creates him he forms him to rule over creation His identity, Adam's identity, is formed his calling. He's called to have dominion over creation. He's called to rule over it, to name the animals, to exercise order and authority, to have rule over God's creation. And Adam serves in this way a representative of all of humankind. We see that before Eve is created, God commands Adam, don't eat of this fruit that I've asked you not to eat of, of a certain tree. Do you see this amazing person of Adam, the amazing man and position that we see? Just think of this character in the Bible. No other human exists. Think of this in the Genesis story. Formed by God, to be like God, placed in the garden that God created, filled with the riches of God's created life, trees full of life and full of fruitfulness, animals scurrying about in the air and on the land. A perfect woman who is given to Adam. A perfect match for him. And in his perfect hands, Adam holds the destiny of all his descendants. He represents all who would come after him. This is the great position and calling that God has given to this one man. And then what follows are some of the most saddest words in all the Bible. Take a look at verse 8. When we read... In chapter 3, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and the wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They take tree leaves, it says, and they conceal their sexuality out of shame, out of fear. They hide from God. The serpent tempts them to become for themselves the source of Of what is right and wrong instead of relying on God what an amazing change that happens what an amazing change from what they had a relationship that was so close close enough where God could breathe into them breathe into their nostrils is now gone they now hide from God who gave them eternal life they're no longer okay with God and therefore they're no longer okay with one another they hide out of shame they cover their nakedness their relationship with each other is now broken Their sense of their relationship is shattered. Their relationship with God is is shattered. They become morbidly self-conscious. Nothing they could do at this moment could restore what has been damaged. It truly is lost. That's why they call it lost. They are lost. This is why they call it the fall. They have fallen from what was so good. In just a few verses, we see how quickly it changed. We learn how quickly sin changes things and what it does. It alienates us from God. It alienates us from one another. Genesis 1 and 2 show us that above all, humankind is made to enjoy a relationship with God, but the sin of Adam and Eve causes them to flee from Him and be afraid, ashamed, and alone. And we see how God confronts them in their sin. Do you remember this story as, as we just read it. He now comes to them and He says to Adam, What happened? What happened? Where where are you? Who told you that you you were naked? Did you eat of the fruit that I told you not to? And right here, God is giving Adam an an opportunity. He's He's opening a door for Adam to repent, to say, I'm a sinner. God, I failed miserably. I did what you told me not to do. But he doesn't do any of that. What does he say? In verse 12, he says, God, you know how women can be. Am I, am I right? Women, right? That's what he says. He says, God, you, she, you gave her to me. Adam blames Eve, and in way of blaming Eve, Adam is really blaming God for his sin. God, it's your fault. You, you must have messed up somewhere. You gave me this woman, and she tempted me. And then he goes to Eve and said, Eve, what happened? What have you done? And she said, what? So he opens up an opportunity for her to repent, to confess, I'm a sinner. And she said, The snake tricked me. I'm just a victim of my circumstances. I'm trying my best, but it wasn't my fault. God is giving them an opportunity to repent, and they don't. They justify their sin. What we don't see is repentance. We don't see humility. We see fear and hiding and covering and evading their sin and covering it up and deflecting it and putting it on other people. And then immediately after the saddest verses in the Bible, we see the happiest words in Scripture. We see a glimpse of some of the happiest words in Scripture in verse 15. So he curses them, right? He curses the serpent, he curses Adam, and he curses Eve, curses creation. And he says, though, in verse 15, I will put enmity between you and, your, and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. What does he say? A day will come when the offspring of Eve, a day will come where the offspring of Eve will destroy the serpent, bringing victory for God's people forever. Although Adam and Eve flee from God, God graciously takes the initiative to rush into the chaos and to tell them about a plan that will rescue them from their sin. He seeks them out and he promises that someone will come into the world through the offspring of Eve, who will wrestle with sin, and he will wrestle, and he will struggle, and he will, though, have victory over death and sin. He will win. This is the prophecy of Jesus Christ. And he will come to destroy the works of the devil. He will destroy sin. He will destroy the evil that Adam and Eve unleashed into all of creation on that day in the garden. Here is the point of Genesis 1-3, to the very beginning of Scripture. The point of Genesis 1-3 to is not to get you and I to try our very best to succeed where Adam failed. This is not the point. You guys, paradise. God gave us paradise. Adam failed. Don't be like Adam. Do the right thing. Obey God. Don't mess up like Adam messed up. I haven't had this conversation often with others as we reflect on Genesis, and we think back, man, what if Adam didn't eat that fruit? What if they didn't sin? Gosh, they really ruined it for us. And They say that, and and we we think about it. We dream, we daydream about what the world would be like if they had not eaten it. And I think what I say and how I respond to them really freaks them out as a pastor. They say, man, what if Adam didn't eat it? And I look at them and I say, well, then I would have. Of course you wouldn't. Okay, well, then you would have. No, I wouldn't. We do it every day. We eat of this fruit every day. We eat of it every day in every way that we fail to submit perfectly and exhaustively to God's Word, to His will, to His character and nature, to the Word of God. You see, if we look at Genesis 1-3, to hoping to succeed where Adam failed, we're already failures. We have already failed. Do you seek to succeed where Adam failed as a means of restoring that relationship with God that was lost in the garden? The Bible says you've already failed at that. If you have committed one sin, you have been like Adam and already failed. If you have neglected in one way, even to the slightest degree, to not conform to God's standard of morality, you have been like Adam. It is here in the first pages of the Bible that we see the failure of religion. You see, we see that religion is created in the Bible. Religion is created in Genesis 1 and 2. God is good. Do good and get good. That's what, that's what is told to Adam. I am good. Everything is good. I've created you for good. I've created you in innocence and perfection. And I am good. Do good and you will live. That's religion. And then we see the failure of religion. They don't do good, and they're punished. Cursed are you. Cursed is creation. Shame and guilt flood into all of our being. And then we see the Gospels presented. God will rescue you. Genesis 3.15. Religion is created. Do good, get good. They fail at religion, and so God initiates the Gospel. He presents the Gospel to them. You see, God gave a command to Adam, and Adam fails, he hides, he blames, and Jesus comes to us at the second Adam, and he knows his job. what What is Jesus' job? He knows what he came to do. The job is simple. Be faithful. Where Adam failed to rescue us from sin and taking on our curse. And this is why Jesus is called the second Adam in scripture. In Romans 6, we're reminded that through One man, Adam, sin comes into the world, and all are condemned, and this original sin, as scholars call it, is the cause for all of our actual sin. The reason why we sin is because we have a natural disposition in our heritage, in our constitution, in our body, because of our first parents. We are disposed to sin, to rebel, to flee from God. We can't help ourselves but to sin like they sinned. And that leads to the very actual sins that we commit in our thinking, in our actions, in our anger, in any form of immorality. And through one man comes death through to everyone, but the free gift of God's grace comes through Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus fulfills the calling given to Adam. Jesus has been faithful where Adam fails. Jesus has been faithful where you and I fail every day. And we will have one of two men represent us to the Father. One of two men represent us to God. We will have Adam represent us to God, and we will stand in a position of guilt. What does it look like to have Adam represent us to God? Well, it's that it's, if we seek to have Adam represent us to God, we are seeking to have our religion and our morality, our character, our record stand before us and God and hoping that God will pardon us. Or we can have Jesus represent us to God, and we will stand in his righteousness and in his grace. If you want to take hold of this promise of rescue in Genesis 3 from sin and the effects of his punishment, then you must trust in the second Adam and not the first. The Bible never presents Jesus in the following way, he is a great man who has said wonderful things and has lived a great life. Follow him. Instead, here in Genesis 1 3, it speaks of Jesus in this, that even though we have followed in the footsteps and the pattern of Adam and Eve by making home in our, in our disobedience, in rebellion, in making a mess of things and in our life, though we have filled our lives with so many things and yet still feel restless, Jesus can breathe new life into us. And take upon Himself the curse that is our sin. Genesis one to three is not saying follow Jesus because He's a good guy, but is saying that we have we have been like Adam, and Jesus takes that sin and He breathes new life into us, just like God breathed life into the first Adam. He can breathe life into us. Second Corinthians five seventeen says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This newness. He's talking about being made new. He's talking about restoring in in, in our whole life this calling that God has given us, this relationship that Adam had in his innocence, restoring the manifestation of this dignity in which he was created, distinct from all of creation. And this newness of life is not just a a fix-it, do-it-yourself, fix-it-up project to making a better you, The moral of this story is not just God desires for us to be better people. It is not just merely taking on a new outlook in life or determining to make a fresh start and saying, you know what, I'm going to start new. I'm going to be a better person having heard this passage. I don't want to be like Adam. I'm going to be a better Adam. This fresh start is talking about the work of the Spirit that genuinely makes us a new creation, that actually takes a dead person spiritually and makes us alive in Christ and unites us to Christ so close that his very breath gives us life. And we belong to him and increasingly every day we become more aware of his love, more aware of that relationship, more aware of what pleases him and our affections change, our hope changes, our disposition towards God and the world changes. We love him and his life reigns in us. And this newness of life is what it means to be born again. As the Bible talks about this, <clears throat> truly a new beginning. A new beginning for sinners. It's what God desires to do to us again, to breathe life into us, to breathe into our nostrils. That's personal, right? We already decided that. It's closeness. It's a relationship that He doesn't have with any of other creation. And when the Scriptures convince us of who we are apart from Jesus and what Jesus has accomplished for us on the cross... We are made new. We experience a life that is unhindered in our fellowship with God. If we do anything but repent of our sin when our sin is made known to us, we are refusing to rely on the grace of God, and we still hold that curse of Adam. You see, if we, if we do anything but rely on the grace of God and repent and trust in His provision for our sin, then we don't get this. We do not become new creations. Would you be honest with yourself this morning as you think about this passage? Are you experiencing this newness of creation in your life? Are you experiencing uh, the newness of God's work? I mean, do you really feel that God is working in you, that he's made you new, that, he is, that he's resurrected a, a dead man or woman or child? He's, he's changed you from the inside he's given you new affections and new desires that he has canceled your record of wrong and debt because of jesus and and you're changing every day would you be honest with yourself and really think do you, do you experience that newness in your life do you have a sense that god is changing you to be more like jesus every day do you have a sense that he's changing you from the inside out do you have a sense that God is, is taking the old stuff in your life and He's removing it and He's chipping away at it and there's, there's less of Pete and more of Jesus? Insert your name there. Less of you and more of Christ and, and as you grow in Him and know His love for you, you're, you're changing, not just in your behavior, but, but in your affections and in your, in your hope and in your fears. Or... Be honest with yourself. Are you experiencing a deadness in your heart towards God? Be honest with yourself, and are you experiencing a life like Adam that says, I feel like I'm hiding from God. I feel estranged from God. I don't feel that closeness with God. His his breath in my nostrils, I can barely see him. I don't even know where he is, let alone feel his presence. Are you attempting to create a new beginning the same way Adam did? Are you attempting to to have this newness in life and get to know God and be changed in the innermost being by doing what Adam failed to do? And you keep trying to do it over and over again. and You keep failing and you say, but today is the day. I'm going to do it better. I'm not going to be like Adam. And then by the end of the day, by lunchtime, by brunch, you already are. And you say, tomorrow's a new day. I'm going to be a better Adam. How many days have you done that? The Bible calls this a curse. If it feels like a curse, it's because it is. Jesus takes upon this curse. The Bible actually says he became our curse. That he had to be born a man. And yet, the Bible says that, I'll tell you what's going to happen. A virgin will conceive of a child and he will be called Emmanuel, God with us. You see, he had to come through woman, and through uh, not the seed of Adam, not the offspring of Adam, so that he would not take on that curse. And then he was faithful to present himself to the Father and to obey the Father in every way that Adam failed to. If you were honest, would you say that there has never been a time in your life where you've sensed God's supernatural new work in your life? giving you a new heart, new affections, new appetite for Him, and a new sense of joy in God yourself. The newness of God, I want to encourage you with this, the newness of God can begin today. The newness of God can begin right now as we turn from the first Adam way of pleasing God through obedience, through our merits, through our work, and trusting in the second Adam and the grace of God given to us and when we do that, when we turn our eyes from ourselves and trying to save ourselves and turn our eyes to Christ, we, his righteousness is imputed to us. It's credited to us. We realize that we are poor and then our bank account is in negative digits. And then we go to our bank and we realize that we're millionaires. Not because of anything that we've done to deserve that, because God is credited to us. And the instrument of that work is our faith, is our relying on him, our trusting in him, are receiving Christ and what he has done. Through faith in God's promise to rescue us from hiding and rebelling from God by sending Jesus to die for us, we are united to him forever. Do you see how Genesis 3 is the first glimpse of the good news? Do you see that we didn't have to go very far in the Bible to speak of Jesus? To see that that Jesus is not just this bystander in history waiting for things to happen, but He is at the very beginning with us, right there in our chaos and in our pain, and God rushes into it, promising hope. The rest of the Bible is like this. The rest of the stories in the Old Testament are like this, where we see that Christ fulfills all that we meant to and failed to, and he is our ultimate hope. I hope that you are there today. I hope that you're experiencing this new life, and if you're not that you would stop trying to save yourselves and you would trust in God and his grace for you. Let's pray.